Welcome to Get Better at Garbage with your host, Colin Bell, COO of Recycle Smart, Canada's fastest growing recycling technology company. We talk tech, innovation, and inside secrets with top industry experts every week. You'll find exclusive content, interviews, and commentary from the leaders in the North American recycling industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Get Better at Garbage. And today we're going to be talking about fiber and not the kind that's in your cereal that makes you regular, but different kinds of fiber. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by Valerie Langen, who is a fiber strategy specialist. Did I just butcher that? Hold on. Yeah, you, you butchered it on two counts. You got my last name wrong and uh, my title wrong. We're off to a terrible start. <laughs> so I'm going to let Valerie introduce herself. Uh, I'm also joined today by Kelly who is our marketing intern who's been helping out. So she'll be doing some of the interviewing today. So Valerie, please uh, save me from butchering your name and your title and introduce yourself. Hi, and my name is Valerie Langer and I am the Fiber Solutions Strategist for Canopy. Uh, and that's not Bay the marijuana company, right? No, uh, we, Canopy is a forest conservation organization and uh, of late we've been confused with Canopy, the uh, fast-growing um, pot uh, company, and uh, so uh, what I like to say is that they will get you high, but we will take you higher. That's catchy. I think that might, you might want to trademark that and uh, take that to the bank because that is catchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Valerie, uh, apologies for butchering your name and your title, and we just rehearsed this, so I basically I should be fired from the podcast, and Kelly should take over. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you. We'll give you one pass. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, so can you just give us a bit of background on before you came to work at Canopy, where did you grow up, where did you go to school, and, and a little bit of career history before uh, Canopy? Uh -huh. oh, well, uh, I, I grew up in a, a few places. I, I grew up, uh, uh, I was born in Canada, moved to Cuba with my family when I was one year old, uh, where my father set up uh, the teaching hospital for surgeons uh, in Havana after the revolution. Uh, came back uh, when I was uh, six, and uh, I grew up uh, mainly in a small town called Brighton, Ontario, near Presqu'Isle Provincial Park, uh, on an apple farm with a small hotel. Um, so I had a pretty idyllic uh, childhood, and uh, I ended up going to school. Uh, through uh, My degree is in semiotics, something nobody, uh, almost nobody knows about. It's a study of sign and symbol systems completely unrelated to the uh, path of uh, work that I ended up uh, taking for most of uh, my adult life, um, but uh, interesting to me all the same. It's a, a kind of an arm of linguistics. I was going to say, I took a communications degree and we talked a bit about semiotics. Yeah, right. Uh, it's yeah, the study of sign and symbol systems. Cool. And so um, how did you end up working at Canopy? What brought you there? Well, I, uh, I moved out to um, the beautiful village of Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island when, when I finished uh, university and um, I taught on reserve there, on the, the colloquiate reserve uh, for a little while with a literacy program um, that I was uh, doing for, for uh, kids. And um, I fell in love with, uh, with that region. I was supposed to go for a short bit. Uh, to the west coast and i ended up staying for 18 years um yeah 
common British Columbia story, uh, I fell in love with the forest. And uh, that forest was being logged at an alarming rate um, at that time by a company called Macmillan Blodell. And uh, I ended up uh, working on a volunteer basis with the Friends of Clackwood Sound. Clackwood is the region that Tofino is uh, situated in. Um, and uh, eventually um, was part of the group that ran one of the, well, the largest civil disobedience in Canadian history, the Clackwood 93 blockades. Yeah, so I, my, my uh, beginnings in the forest conservation world are very grassroots or oriented, um, uh, kind of uh, radical beginnings, spent some time in jail. Um, and uh, coming out of that experience, I was uh, very committed to um, strategically figuring out how not to have to um, get myself arrested and everybody else who wanted to do something about the forest having to be arrested, although that's a legitimate way to, um, you know, peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience is a legitimate uh, form of action when uh, no other uh, action uh, is uh, being heard and, justice, and injustice is intolerable. Um, but strategically, um, that's not uh, what's going to stop uh, companies around the world from buying the wood from forests, either in the Amazon or you know, British Columbia's old growth or um, the boreal of Canada and Russia. So I was very committed at that point in that experience after blockading companies and seeing people get arrested who I, I felt had no reason to have to be sent to jail. I thought, well, the reason this is happening, that unsustainable logging of, of ancient and endangered forests is happening, is because companies are buying the wood. Who's buying this wood? Where are the products going? And we didn't want to just shunt the, pro the, the problem around the world. We didn't want to say, don't buy from here, buy from the Amazon instead. Uh, so uh, that put me on the path of looking at how we could change the buying habits of corporations. Um, who buy paper and uh, lumber products. Uh, so that led me into what we call the market campaigns, uh, which were a feature of the what was called the war in the woods um, through the 1990s uh, when I was with Friends of Clackwood Sound. Uh, I eventually was part of the negotiating team that negotiated the Great Bear Rainforest uh, Agreements. Uh, this 15 million hectare uh, conservation agreement with First Nations logging companies and the government of BC. Um, and uh, with Canopy, I started this uh, program to find alternatives to wood for making paper, uh, even some building products, and for making um, viscose, which is the base for textiles like Lyocell and rayon and tensel. It's interesting. So you you've literally come from the grassroots of being you know chained to a tree, all the way up to you know international supply chains, which mm -hmm. have a huge impact. Uh, so that's that's an amazing journey to come from very very grassroots, as you were mentioning, but now up to where Canopy is operating. And maybe it's a good chance to give our listeners just a quick snapshot of of what Canopy does uh, in terms of the elevator pitch and your role there. Right. Well, um, Canopy is the, perhaps the best uh, little organization you've never heard of. 
um, <laughs> it, uh, it, it doesn't have a very public profile. It's not that we're not trying uh, or not interested in that, but that's not the way we work. Um, primarily, um, Canopy is a forest conservation organization that leverages the buying power of large corporate purchasers of um, paper and uh, viscose textile products uh, to get them to influence their suppliers all the way down through the supply chain back to the logging companies who provide the wood that goes into these products. So um, rather than having the small voice of a small organization try and influence a logging company, Canopy has uh, harnessed the, um, the, the powerful influence of uh, over 700 companies, companies like H&M, um, companies like Target, and Amazon, uh, who buy billions of dollars of, of um, forest products uh, in the form of their packaging uh, and their textiles. And um, with that, those partnerships, um, um, these large corporations have formed policies with us that, in which they've committed to eliminate the use of ancient and endangered forest fiber in their products, and we help them implement those um, those policies. And it's been quite successful at um, shifting and changing supply chains. And Canopy works worldwide, right? This isn't just oh, a, that's right. yes. it's not just protecting BC forests. This is talking about you might be buying from, you know, the Amazon or different Indonesia. Yeah. So this yeah. this is uh, ancient and endangered forests, which we've identified in. Uh, we we have a um, a tool called Forest Mapper on our website, and that's how companies can identify. They can ask their suppliers, "Are you sourcing from any of these forests that are shown?" on the forest mapper tool that Canopy has on their website. And that's how they know where not to buy from. Right. And because a lot of these uh, large companies, I'm assuming, have pretty complex supply chains and oh. suppliers. And it's this, this is the thing. Mess. If it was easy, it would have been done already. You know, <laughs> these are really complex supply chains. You're right. Uh, there's a, um, a circuitous route from the, from the forest uh, to the mill, to the uh, to the sawmill, to the pulp mill, and on and on to uh, where things become paper and brokers and converters that make the packaging. And so, by the time you have the the box that your uh, groceries uh, came delivered in, if you're getting them delivered to your door now uh, with COVID, uh, any of that kind of e-commerce and um, uh, even the shipping from you know, companies that manufacture in China or in Bangladesh or Vietnam and then ship the product to warehouses in North America. Those boxes come from wood that could be logged in the rainforest habitat of orangutans in Indonesia before it uh, ever makes it to your doorstep. Yeah, it's amazing the international supply chain and how complex it can get. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, I think you want to ask a couple of questions about uh, current projects and, and what's on the go right now on, at Canopy. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for giving us a large scale of what's going on at Canopy. But we are also wondering, what project are you currently working on? Well, I'm uh, as fiber solutions strategist for Canopy, uh, I work to um, connect uh, innovators who have figured out how to use alternative 
fibers, um, such as uh, wheat straw or miscanthus grass uh, uh, for making pulp or making paper, paper being you know, a huge user of, of uh, forests around the world, uh, or things like uh, using recycled um, textile waste, cotton textile waste, uh, diverting it from the landfill and instead um, renewing it in a, uh, a new process to create rayon and viscose uh, textiles so that you don't have to cut a tree, dissolve it to make rayon and viscose um, textiles. So I connect the innovation, uh, our innovation partners uh, with uh, the brands uh, who would buy the end products and help create a new supply chain, uh, new manufacturing facilities, a new um, uh, way of uh, creating the products that uh, are being manufactured without having to log a forest to do it. So is that one of your, one of the ideas here is, uh, you know, use forests responsibly. So if you are going to be, you know, cutting down a tree to make paper uh, or textiles, make sure that you're doing the most responsible manner, but also that move away from forests altogether as a fiber source to say, hey, there's a lot yes. of other fiber sources out there in the world. Instead of cutting down a tree, you could use hemp or, you know, straw. Or, or wheat straw. Yeah. So uh, for, uh, so my, my most recent project with, with Canopy was uh, I researched and, and wrote something called Survival, a Pulp Thriller. And we launched it in January, this past January, uh, in Davos during the World Economic Forum with the CEO of H&M. Uh, who is very interested in purchasing alternative fiber textiles and packaging uh, in order to save forests. So in Survival, a pulp thriller, uh, we document how it would take $69 billion over the next 10 years to build the mills in the right countries like India, Brazil, Indonesia, the United States, Canada, China, to build mills that can take uh, fibers from uh, agricultural lands that are currently uh, where they burn the straw and cause pollution uh, and instead of burning it turn it into pulp for paper and for uh, for textiles instead of landfilling um, cotton t-shirts and jeans uh, which cities pay for uh, to, to landfill taking them and turning them into uh, new viscose um, textiles so um, that's the project I'm working on now is how to actually raise that $69 billion over the next 10 years to build the mill infrastructure so that we don't have to use it. So yes, log responsibly, but you can't grow an economy, which is the, the projection over the next decade, uh, and log responsibly, but, but grow the total amount of paper that's going to be used or textile that's going to be used. because even logging responsibly, you will log too much in order to feed a growing industry. So, right. so we need to get smarter. We can't just yeah. We, we can't just uh, purchase smart and responsibly out of this yeah. because we're but, yeah. So exactly. So it's 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 not just uh, so we're working with the people who make the fibers, who buy the fibers, um, in order that the consumer can get what they want but we all have to participate in how we create a more sustainable um, uh, economy. And that is a circular economy. So rather than um, 
always going back to uh, a raw fiber source to supply paper uh, and packaging or for textiles um, to take the what is currently considered waste and cycling that back into the production facility. And that way we don't have to, you know, expand where we log uh, more responsibly because we just can't access that much volume of wood. Right, we're just going to outstrip the, what the forest capacity is. We've already outstripped it. We've already, oh no, yes, yeah, yeah we're, we're way past we're, it. Exactly, we, we passed that threshold. And so we have to actually scale back how much logging happens. And the only way we're going to do that is by closing the loop on our, what we can currently consider waste, but which could be um, recycled back into um, paper and uh, viscose uh, textiles. So, Kelly, I think you have some specific questions on kind of how that's done with uh, a few of the initiatives. So maybe let's delve into that. Mm -hmm. um, before we kind of delve into deeper, your projects that you mentioned have been really impressive. I was just wondering from your personal opinion, what was the biggest project that you've worked on in your career? Oh, in my career? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, well, this one that I'm working on right now, the, the survival of pulp thriller, where we're um, um, uh, pulling together investors um, to scale up uh, construction of, or retrofitting of mills around the world. Uh, I'm super excited by this uh, project to um, uh, connect all the elements uh, together so that we can uh, start producing um, closed loop uh, type um, materials to save forests, so alternative fibers. So that's one. Um, prior to that, I worked on the Great Bear Rainforest um, uh, Conservation Framework, uh, and um, that was, you know, it took 20 years. It was very complex. We negotiated with uh, five major uh, forestry companies um, uh, on the coast of British Columbia, the, Brit the British Columbia government, uh, and uh, there were uh, 26 uh, First Nations uh, that were involved as well. So it was a complex negotiation, which has uh, developed a world-leading, uh, world-recognized framework for how to um, uh, conserve large areas of forest. So 85% of the Great Bear Rainforest is now off limits to logging. Uh, so large scale forest conservation concurrent with uh, human well-being initiatives. So where we didn't separate out the human from the, uh, the, the nature part of, um, of the equation that we advance both together. So it sounds to me like you're not scared when someone says this is going to take 20 years and cost $69 billion. Uh, no, uh, tenacity is my second name. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's fine. I've got 20 years. Let's do this. So, Because most people would be like, 20 years and $69 billion. I, uh, I think I got to go somewhere else. But um, Well, the $69 billion is only 10 years. So, uh, Oh, okay. <laughs> that's just phase one. Only billion. But okay. you're right. I mean, the scale of this challenge, it, like when you say $69 billion, I think a lot of people their eyes probably pop out of their head. But when you look at the size of the textile and the you know, paper cardboard business in the world, I mean, it's a massive, massive business. So, I mean, 69 billion, when you look at the quantity of material moving through these, these systems every year is not that crazy, right? You're not, you're not yeah. massive. Uh, even that is probably you know, a drop in the bucket in terms of what's going on right now. 
Yeah, it's uh, in, in, in terms of over 10 years, it's really peanuts. And to put it into perspective, the company that manufactures Botox, uh, two years ago, they sold that company for uh, just under $69 billion uh, in one year. Uh, so uh, if we can mobilize uh, you know, $68 billion to, um, you know, to make sure that there's Botox in the world, uh, I think we can probably, over 10 years, mobilize $69 billion uh, to, to save our climate and species and forests. I, I didn't realize that Botox was such a big business, but uh, that makes mm -hmm. sense, I guess. <laughs> There's a lot of people looking to get a little help. Uh, so Yeah, but we need to get our priorities straight. That's true, yeah. Botox or the survival of the ecosystem. Um, yeah. So speaking of big operations, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about your recent partnership? You guys recently uh, partnered up with Amazon. Which yep. is kind of an kind of ironic name in forest preservation because it's one of the <laughs> biggest users of cardboard, named after one of the most endangered forest ecosystems on Earth. Yeah, yes, there are ironies abound. Uh, and our partnership with Amazon at this point does not include their uh, packaging, although uh, we would love it to, and so we're continuing to talk with the company. Uh, our partnership with Amazon uh, uh, is around their uh, text uh, use of what we call man-made cellulosic textiles. So those are viscose, um, rayon, lyocell, modal uh, uh, textiles. Uh, Amazon owns uh, a bunch of private label brands. Um, right. So okay. So this they're, they're a massive corporation. They own a lot of other companies. Gotcha. And uh, some of them are their own private label uh, brands. So Amazon has committed to work with Canopy to eliminate all uh, ancient and endangered forest fiber from their textiles for their private label um, brands. Yeah, it's uh, interesting when you look at Amazon, where their tentacles go, because I think a lot of people think that they're just, you know, the online shopping store where you go and get stuff. But really, yeah, they're into all kinds of different areas. Private exactly. Label. And, 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 and because of their size, they're very influential. So when a company like Amazon uh, says to their supplier, we want to make sure that we uh, are consistent with Canopy's uh, standard. Um, and we produce a, Canopy produces a, a tool called the Hot Button Report every year, which ranks viscose producers as to whether they are uh, green shirt, yellow shirt, or red shirt, uh, meaning uh, they either are, uh, have no ancient and endangered forest fiber in their viscose or they have uh, some but are moving away from it, or they are an uh, absolute uh, 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 forest destroyer uh, type um, viscose producer. <laughs> they're <laughs> in the red shirt zone. They're I'm in the red shirt zone. So uh, uh, Amazon is committed to uh, you know, move within um, uh, a year to green shirt suppliers. And that's very motivating to suppliers to start looking at how they can jettison um, the forest destruction um, uh, supply chain out of, out of their um, uh, feedstock. So, you know, companies like Amazon, they carry a lot of weight in the supply chain. Yeah, and we've seen that in other uh, areas in the recycling industry with, you know, big players like Costco. If they, if they mandate a change or if they enforce, you know, some kind of standard like FSC or something like that on their suppliers, it does move the market. And then once those suppliers make the change for Costco, they're like, well, we're already doing it for Costco. So we'll do it for our second tier customers too. Because Exactly. Yeah. So this had to make the change. 
Yeah, so this this is how uh, how a market shifts is you you get the the bigger influential players to commit. Um, even they generally don't buy all of the product from a single mill. So, uh, but it has to be worth the the while for a mill uh, to invest in the change. Um, and the, once they are producing uh, the alternative fiber product or an FSC certified uh, product, then it's easier for smaller uh, players who don't have that kind of influence. So smaller businesses who want to do better um, then can get access to the product. But um, you have to shift some of the bigger players in order to stimulate the market for alternatives. Yes, for sure. Uh, Kelly, I think you've got uh, one more question and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. Yes. So our most um, significant question for our podcast is, how do you like your eggs? Do you like them scrambled, <laughs> poached, sunny side up? Well, my favorite way to have eggs is actually basted in portobello mushrooms. Wow. Okay. Explain, because I've never heard that, and now I'm curious. Uh, yeah. You, you, uh, first, you, you bake the portobello, you hollow out the portobello mushroom, uh, and then you... Uh, bake it for a little while so it's cooked and then you put the egg inside the hollow okay and cook it till the egg is cooked this is kind of like put on blue but instead of the chicken we're using the, <laughs> the mushroom and the and so you do this in the oven is that yeah kind of... you do it you do it in the oven okay yeah and then you chop chop up all kinds of nice things like red pepper and onions and uh, stir fry them up with some garlic put it over the top super delicious yeah, that does sound good. I mean, I'm, I love mushrooms, especially if they're cooked, uh, cooked well. So, uh, Valerie, thank you very much for taking the time. I think this is a, it's an area that a lot, not a lot of people think about. I know textile waste is definitely becoming more uh, mm -hmm. front of mind in the last couple of years with fast fashion. So last question, uh, just in terms of for our listeners, if someone is interested in learning more, like let's say they, they want to know, you know, where the material that they're buying, you know, is coming from, from their favorite supplier. Maybe, you know, they love buying from H&M or they love their Amazon, whatever. So what's the best way for consumers to kind of find out, hey, is my favorite brand? What are they doing? You know, right. how do they find that out? Is it the best way, uh, you know, to go to someone like Canopy and, and read the reports or is there a better source of information out there? Well, if you're interested in, in knowing uh, which uh, brands have committed to eliminate ancient and endangered forest from their uh, fabrics, uh, then you can go to the Canopy website, look at partners, and we have a list of all the brands, uh, th more than 320 brands that have um, made commitments and are implementing them with Canopy. So that, and certainly support the brands who uh, have made those commitments. Um, don't forget the paper. Uh, the, the fashion sector is also one of the biggest users of packaging. Uh, and so several of those brands have also uh, signed on uh, to eliminating ancient and endangered forest fiber from their packaging supply chain. Um, that's listed on our website as well. Great. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll link that. Oh, I oh. should say the website is www.canopyplanet.org. Perfect. And we will link to that on the podcast posting so people can uh, zip in there and check it out. Thanks, Valerie, for uh, taking the time to talk today. It was very interesting. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting things on the Get Better at Garbage podcast is these niches within the industry that I think most people are not aware of. I had no idea that anything was going on with fiber at this level. Um, and so I think that it's a real eye-opener for a lot of us that kind of are we're at the very end of that supply chain. We just go on Amazon and we order our box of whatever, and it shows up and we have no idea that that box 
could come from Indonesia from a forest cut in somewhere halfway around the world. Um, so I think as consumers, it's important for us to become more aware. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, next week, we're going to be chatting with the folks from Chop Value, who are a local Vancouver Sussex story doing chopstick recycling. So somewhat fiber-based, um, but we're going to be catching up with them on what they're doing with chopsticks. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Remember, you can recycle past episodes at www.recycle-smart.com slash podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for joining us. And remember to get better at garbage, rock the recycling, and save some serious dough.